The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, op stay obfuscating way your way, okay, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 194 with guest Hui Hong Lo, recorded live Thursday, August 3rd, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man with a bad case of water-cooled envy, Carl Franklin! Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff, and uh, thanks, everybody. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. We're here again, as we are every week. I'm Carl Franklin. I'm in New London, Connecticut, halfway between Boston and New York. My counterpart out there in Vancouver, British Columbia, Mr. Richard Campbell. Yes, sir. How's your office coming along? Well, I got the big beast fired up today, and that's uh, the all-water-cooled triple-screen <laughs> solution, so we got water-cooled motherboard and a water-cooled power supply and water-cooled video cards and it's just about to melt down so i gotta go to the water-cooled radiator and try and get it cool and that water's coming out of your wall you maniac (laughs) (laughs) well we're just trying to do it right you know i'm after having all this horsepower and no noise at all okay so uh what do the neighbors think well the neighbors who wrote me off for years ago they know i'm crazy well okay at least you got smart neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody in that neighborhood smart. So uh, this is show number 194. Can you believe it? Getting down to the last of the shows, aren't we? Yeah, we're coming close to that number 200. I can't believe we have Then two- what do we do? I think we'll have a 24-hour .NET Rocks channel on XM or something. You know, We could just cycle through all 200 shows over and over and over and over again. There's a lot of shows. A lot of talking. Well, anyway, uh, you know, we're in the midst of our uh, .NET Rocks Tech Ed Barcelona sweepstakes. We're going to uh, Tech Ed Europe. That's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I got our things all sorted out, and uh, people keep entering the contest, so we're going to bring somebody with us. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's right.、Uh, if you haven't been paying attention, we're basically giving away a ticket to TechEd in Barcelona, Spain, and that's November seventh through tenth. You can read about it shrinkster dot com h h h, which is the official Microsoft events Europe dot com. It's really called TechEd Europe Developer because they also、right. have an IT half. The the week after is the IT part, and this first week is the developer part, and that's where we're going、right. to be. Right, so we're going to be podcasting the show from the floor. We're going to have interviews. We're going to do a .dot net rocks live with a surprise guest, and we're hosting a show called、uh, Speaker Idol. Yeah, which、uh, contestants will try to compete for a spot as a tech ed speaker. And、uh, the way we're going to do this is every week you go to、uh, shrinks dot com hhi or .dot net rocks dot com slash barcelona, or just click the big Barcelona button on the site. And、uh, we're going to collect some demographic data from you. We're just going to do this once. Just some questions like. What we're really interested in is, you know, how many people do you share your downloads with? That's a big question, but also sort of what industry are you in? It's only a couple of questions; doesn't take long at all. And、uh, in return for that, you get to enter into the contest. Now, every week you can enter the contest. You answer a question about the current week's show, and we're going to draw a winner every week from the correct answers from those who got the answer right. Those weekly winners get their choice of swag item from our .netrocks useless crap store, and on October twenty fourth, we're going to pick a winner from all the weekly winners. And、uh, Richard, last week's question was, "What did Joel Joel Semeniuk say his favorite feature of Team System is?" And the answer,、mm. the answer is the API, of course, extensibility. And because、uh, <laughs> Joel's really into taking Team System into new heights, yes, he he's writing his own software for it. He's really、uh, exercising it, and the API is the way. By the way, now Joel is teaching、uh, his just-in-time Team System five-day hands-on class at Franklin's.net in New London. We got dates on the website. Go check it out. It's going to be fabulous.、Uh, the winner this week is Johan Sudstrom from Finland. Congratulations, Johan! You、uh, will be contacting. We will be contacting you soon. You get to claim your prize, and you're in the running for the big show. So we're also going to be in Bulgaria, October ninth and tenth at Devreach, Devreach dot com, which is、uh, you know our friends at Telerec are involved in that. And、right. immediately following that, on October fourteenth, we'll be in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at the Tulsa Tech Fest. Saturday, October fourteenth, sort of like a、uh, uh, code camp gone wild kind of thing. I don't know what it with why well, they call it four states、fest. involved. I think six different user groups. It's huge. It's crazy.、Right. Mark Miller's going to be there too, and that's at www.tulsatechfest.com. Well, Richard, you have an email this week. I do have an email from Duncan Godwin. Hi, Carl and Richard. I've been a listener to your show for quite some time now, and it's provided me with many happy hours of technical listening for my journeys to work. So, thanks. In episodes gone by, you've asked for requests for guests to be on your show. It would be great for you to be able to talk to Jeffrey Richter and George Chrysanthopoulos. Woo! What a name! To talk、yeah. about concurrency and coordination runtime, which has just been released as part of the robotics SDK. Hey,、mm. Microsoft has a robotics SDK. Very cool. It's some really cool stuff.、Uh, kind regards,、uh, Duncan Godwin. Duncan, 
Thank you for your request. I will look into it. You know, we do take your show requests very seriously. And you'll notice that uh, even today's guest came from a listener saying, boy, I'd really like to hear from this guy. Right. So that's the way we like to build the show. We do what you want. Yes. And, uh, and I'll see what we can do about this robotics SDK. And we will send Daniel and Duncan a .NET Rocks mug just for being such great fans. And if you want to send us email, send it to .NET Rocks at franklins.net. Okay, now we have a real treat for you. Are, are you excited, Richard? Are you I'm excited? I'm totally stoked. You can't believe how excited I was when I actually got a yes to this guest. Yes. So Hui Hong Luo is the author of the Salamander suite of tools from RemoteSoft, including a true, true .NET decompiler, an obfuscator and protector, which go hand in hand, as well as a .NET native compiler, which produces executables that don't require the .NET framework. All right, so really incredible technology. He's also the author of a, a piece of software called Octopus, which is a universal .NET language translator. And his latest venture, which we'll talk to him about all these things, Codace.com, is a syntax-aware source code search engine on the web. Too cool. Will you please welcome Hui Hong Loa. Hi, Hui Hong. Hey, Kyle and Richard. How are you guys? We're doing fine. Really excited to talk to you. I'm more than happy to be here discussing with you. We have been fans of your tools since, I have anyway, since the very beginning of .NET Rocks. Uh, Mark Dunn and I had talked to uh, Brent Rector like uh, in the, within the first 20 shows. It must have been. I can't remember which show it was now. Uh -huh. But, um, and of course he is in the, you know, uh, obfuscator business as well. And we asked him, uh, you know, about your stuff. And so he had some opinions, but we were talking about you way back then. And I think we even emailed you a couple of times, but for some reason schedules, it's just one of those things that happens, you know, in this busy world of ours. But, you know, your tools, uh, among the regional directors recently too, we, um, you know, I guess there was a lot of regional directors that hadn't heard of you. And the ones that did were like, we were just stunned when we saw the output of this uh, decompiler. You know, guys had lost, uh, it came up because some one of the RDs had lost some source code. And uh, they wanted to get it back. And, of course, most people said the first thing you should try is Reflector. And, uh, and then somebody else said, well, Reflector is good, but it doesn't really give you compilable source code. And then somebody, and I think I mentioned Salamander, and a few other people said, yes, this, you know, we, when we looked at this, the output was just stunning. Well, and I think people started throwing sample code up. Look, here's was the original source. I compiled it. I decompiled it with Salamander. I think the only thing missing was the comments. The variable names were right. Everything was right. It was just, it's startling how effective Salamander is. So I, my question to you, Hui Hong, is do you ever sleep? <laughs> well, my wife was complaining about that. Yeah. <laughs> I try to work very, yeah, as much as possible. Right. I'm glad, yeah, people like my tools, the tools. Yes. I yes. hope, yeah, your Donnet Rock fans can get some useful information from today's topic. Yeah, I think so, so today we're too. going to talk, maybe discuss about code security and intellectual property protections, right? Right. Well, let's talk about sort of, I, I want to know how, first of all, you got the idea to do this, and then what approach you took that might have been different from traditional approaches. 
I mean, I see hacker all over your stuff. I mean, you, you really get in there and, and hack away and try some really inventive things to, to come up with uh, the results that you do. How did you do this? Yeah, I think uh, let's maybe uh, talk about e-compiler. Yeah. Actually, in, even uh, since 1995, I was uh, starting working on Java decompiler. A Java decompiler. Yeah, but I have never released it because someone else did it. Yeah, right. And until 2000, when .NET, you know, that's the .NET first version come out. Right. Then I look at the spec and uh, it's very similar to Java, the bad code, the virtual machines. Mm. And then at that time, there's a no, source, no decompiler for .NET. So I kind of just porting the Java version to .NET. Okay. And also incorporate some of the other technicals to make sure it works. And uh, yeah, the first the first result, I mean, the result also it surprised me. It's so yeah. close to the original source code. It surprised you. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, in theory, all the code compared from this high-level source code programming language, like yeah. Java, 98% of the construct is reducible. They call it like in graph in graph term, it's reducible. That means 98% of the code can be regenerated into a structure. 98% of the code can be regenerated? Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah. Because if you don't do anything, this comp the compiler, they have some uh, optimization, but still, all the graph, because there's no go-to statement, mm. to make the decompilation much easier. You said the something about the graph. Yeah, if you the the structure flow of your program. Okay. Because no, because you don't use go to this state. Right. right. So make the decompilation easier. I see. So without so go tos makes decompilation really hard. But still, if you want to really generate code which is similar to your source code, yeah, you have to do some lots of little things like to. Record the source level, the source position, the bytecode position. Bytecode position, yeah. Yeah, this this kind of uh, information. Right. Yeah, I would imagine that it'd be hard to follow all those paths when you have, you know, just go here, go here, go there, go there. Hard branching. Yeah, hard That's branching. Right. Yeah. It. I mean, it's an interesting thought here. On one layer, I think. Well, the reason that decompiling exists and works so well is because of the whole IL thing that we're compiling all these languages to a common point. But it's more than that, isn't it? Uh, that, I think the real big reason why IL and the Java backcode is easy to compile is because of the existence of a symbolic information. The symbols. The symbols. Yeah. And they have to exist because of the cross-platform rules. If you're going to be able to break this on multiple platforms, you need those symbols. That's right. Because like uh, also, because C Sharp and Java is a highly object-oriented language. Right. So you have all the classes and the members and the methods. Even like suppose if you have a C plus program, if you ship all the debug information to your customers, then the easy to compile is yeah. like a C sharp. If even C plus or native code, if you have a debug information shipped with your customers. Yeah. And again, that's because of the symbol tables. Yeah, the simple. And uh, yeah, that's uh, another reason because C sharp is uh, the IL code is highly stack based, so right. they use one stack to, for the evaluation. Mm. So when you execute your program, it's like a push a variable into a stack and a pop up. 
they don't use the register. Okay. And in C++, C++ the native code that have like a 16 or 8 registers and then right, right. more difficult to compare, even with the simple information available. So what source of information did you use to learn all about the .NET framework and the intricacies that you needed to know in order to make this kind of tool? Oh, yeah. I think I just downloaded and then using debug to hack into it. As you so, said, I like to hack into things. Really? So, <laughs> so did you really did you use any sort of reference material or did you just start looking around? I usually just using the Win debugger, the, the kernel driver. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it, Richard? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's kind of terrifying to me that he can actually read that stuff. I know. <laughs> it's all well and fine to have a debugger, but making sense of it's another thing entirely. That's right. If you want to do a decompiler, you ought to just read those assembly code very naturally. Right, yeah, you've got to be able to read that. That's and, right. I mean, the last time I was reading Assembler was in 68,000. But you've got to read a lot of assembly code to get an idea of what this thing's doing. I mean, that, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. You I have just, to read novels like, worth of assembly I like code. Hack in, even the OS kernel, I mean, I use the debugger read a lot with those assembly languages. Hui so should we be uh, afraid of you? <laughs> are you are you are you actually Doctor Evil? <laughs> Do you have like a lab somewhere? I don't, I don't somewhere? have any computer virus. Well, it's easy to one. Yeah, that's just a place not a lot of people go. You know. I I yeah I think I just from the first day I I like computer. I just like to learn the low level stuff. The reason I did a decompile, I just want to show .NET is easy to decompile, and I use you ought to use any of the protection tools. So yeah. the, the and that's an interesting and, point: is that one of the main things that you get from seeing a decompiler in action is knowing why you want an obfuscator. That's right. That's exactly true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, but because now I can, I find it's natural to read that, like even even machine code. So I may in the future just put my decompiler to native code. Really? So can decompile C++ code. The first version maybe we target files with uh, simple information like with debug information. You know Microsoft ship all the simple debug information for the Windows OS, right? Right, right. So yeah, to me, if this tool is ready, then you can get all the source code from the OS, from Windows source OS. Yeah, it's an interesting truth that, yeah, you could literally decompile all of Windows, especially those debug builds. I mean, everything in there is all you need to to decompose it. Of course, once you've decompiled Windows, then what? What do you do with it? Well, you Uh, know, to me, Hui Hong, um, uh I I always saw DLLs, like the native DLLs, as just a way to conserve memory in the days when memory needed to be conserved. And, you know, if you think about it, with four gigabytes of RAM, you don't really need that kind of... I mean, you can have multiple images in memory at the same time. In fact, you do with processes, so... That's right, yeah. Now, with all those powerful machines and the huge memory... Yeah. ...disk space, I mean, the previous concerns maybe we may disappear in the future. Yeah. Especially all those virtual machines, right? People now run... Almost every every developer runs a bunch of virtual machines on the same machine. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, for the productivity gains. 
So, uh, and, and virtual machine just protects you from all those vagaries of interoperability between applications and things. You just don't deal with it. It goes away. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, the reason I, I just I feel intricate into Windows OS because, yeah, personally, they're also very interested in the virtual machine technology. Right. That's why I dig into the OS uh, assembly code a lot. Yeah. So you, you, you're a fan of virtual PC? Yeah, virtual PC with VMware. VMware. And also, I think, you know, the, our link to the other the tool we are going to discuss shortly. Codase. Actually a virtual, a virtual machine, the application virtual level. Oh, wow. Technology. Wow. So Very you cool. don't have to install, like, uh, suppose you have a Donut application. Now you don't have to install anything. You can run just from SAD. That's like a virtualization. Let me ask you, uh, if I can, getting back to the decompiler, is there, has anybody ever thrown, because you have a website where people can, you know, uh, post in uh, stuff and, and convert it. What is, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of something that you upload an assembly and it decompiles it on the fly on the website, right? That's right. Have you ever had anybody send anything up that didn't decompile? Like, is there anything that you're, that the decompiler can't touch? Um, the, yeah, if it's a .NET, then can be decompiled. But the, we do, yeah, receive some reports that are bugs. Then we we fix. So it's just a matter of bug fixes. There isn't anything there. You've never come across anything that you couldn't fix. You're uh, a salamander to decompile. That's right. Yeah. Huh. So we, if we, I mean, it's just like uh, the efforts, right? If you have a time, if you want to put it into big efforts, I mean, then should it be okay? Everything is going to decompile. The real challenge is, can you do anything once it is with it once it is decompiled? And I guess that's where the obfuscator comes in. Actually, this morning I just look at our log. To today, today it's about four hundred thousand files has been uploaded. Wow! So people every day I think I receive maybe a few hundred files. People just test and they try maybe because when they do new products, they want to test and they try see how what's the result. Wow, indeed. When they just upload to our online decompiler. Wow. So I see all kinds of maybe I see all kinds of DLS executables. We do it just delete it automatically, but all, I think pretty much all the products has a copy in our your repository. Yeah. So Huiyang, talk about this obfuscator bit. What does it really do? You can't stop decompilation, but you can make it useless. It just make it more difficult for people to understand the decompile code. And so the big thing is, I mean, just replacing all the names the, yeah, and the, the variable names and not classes and so forth with meaningless stuff. That's right. You are hundred percent correct. So yeah. because the 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 virtual machine, the CLR engine doesn't care what kind of a simple names you use. So you could rename all the symbols to whatever you want just to make people very hard to understand those symbols. Yeah, I can think of some nasty names you could turn them into. I mean, basically just random strings of characters. Or numbers, you know. Or yeah. numbers. Usually the short, like just A, just like a letter A, the short is more difficult for people to understand. Yeah, right. It's hard to also, remember it. It's not unique. Yeah, you want to try the, the reduction just like using the same name as much as possible for all kinds of symbols. Because the CLR engine recognizes the signature rather than just the name. name. Right. 
So if you are you if you have two methods which differs in signature, then you can use the simple name the same name for the for those two methods. Yeah. As long so, as you know they're in isolation, yeah. I guess you can you can really mess them up doing that. That's right. <laughs> There are so, other techniques that you use besides changing the symbols, though, right, to obfuscate. Do you actually uh, encrypt literal strings? Yeah, the string is another one, but that one is a kind of uh, just a little trick because people can easily remove that obfuscation. The other ones, the obfuscate, I mean, the theory, the implementation for obfuscate is just uh, it's simple. I think every developer can do it in a few days. Okay. To develop obfuscate, I mean, but just the the main difficulty is a a cross a, a cross obfuscation. Like if you have a ten files, if you have a what? A reference to each other. Okay. And how do you like, deal with the cross reference? That's the main. That's the difficulty. Objects that have references to each other. That's right. Also, yeah. you have to make sure the virtual because the .NET has a virtual method. You okay. Right. That will synchronize those methods, virtual methods. All right. That's the, I think that that's the major part for the challenge for implement obfuscation. If just doing simple rename, renaming simple is very easy. You can use the reflections to get all the variables and then just rename to right. something else. So that's why in, on the market there are Lots, there are many obfuscated available. Do you also do um, uh, code code pointer uh, scattering? In other words, putting in go tos. And for that one, we actually we don't really implement because we have another tool that protects those. I so see. for the obfuscated, we just implement the the fundamental things for right. simple renaming, metadata reduction, and the cross obfuscation. Also, because we have another offer, the link to now people can link two files together. So to we link it with the system libraries, so you could eliminate system calls. Yeah. yeah so this is this is we're getting into the .NET uh, compiler, the native compiler, right? In Linker. Yeah, the Linker and the native compiler. So so that uh, is it, we'll talk about that in a sec. But your your protector now, the protector does what? It protects your code against obfuscation. Is is it just protecting against obfuscation from your tool or from oh, other obfuscators uh, as well? Uh, of course, uh, this tool has to be targeting all the decompilers, right? It doesn't make sense if we're just targeting our own decompiler. Yeah. Right. And people can write decompiler. There are a few like Reflector is a good one. There are also a few other decompilers available. So all of our protection to have to target all the decompilers. Okay, so it's a protector against decompilation. That's right. Yeah. So the protect and the native compiler is actually using the same principle. So the reason .NET can be decompiled because the presence of the AL code, intermediate language. Right. And the metadata information. So mm. now that... I think I have I have been researching this very hard, and I, I think the best way to attack against the compilation is just convert everything into native code. Right. Because today, there's still no good decompiler available for native code. Yeah, once it's native, it's instructions, and yeah, that's if, very hard to... Without 
debug information as we discussed earlier. Right? It's very, I, I couldn't imagine any good decompile available for native code. Okay, so so let's talk about the native compiler then. Obviously, this this one turned our heads as well, and you've had this out for a number of years. The um, the sample that you do, I believe, is uh, a graphics program, like a paint program. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and and you have the it's a script sample from Microsoft the sample source code. Yeah. Okay, so right, and you you basically turn this into a big. Exe and you linked in all of the little pieces of the .NET framework that get called. Um, the same question applies as before. Is there anything that this won't natively compile? Um, you mean for first? Yeah. Now let's talk. There are two steps involved, right? The okay. First one, the linking. Yeah. Link refers to physically merge two or more assemblies into one. Right. So, like, uh, now for Donna, for Donna image, every image refers to a bunch of a library. Right. So first, our link to just trying to find all the references and put it together. Right. Into a simple file. Now, are you you're not using the assembly linker for that, are you? That's yeah. You are. So yep. the the dot from the SDK, the AL assembly linker. Uh, we don't use that. It's a similar idea. Yeah, it's just. Uh, just we we just uh, read all the error code and then find all the necessary ones. We throw away those code that don't use, and okay. then link them together into one file. Right. So if you look at the link to the script sample, the the simple painting program, you would see that the only one reference now remaining is the MS Lib. That's the system library. We don't we don't link. Okay. All the other references like the Windows forms. The mm-hmm. system draw mm-hmm. all those libraries are linked together. So, what about the core lib that has the the CLR, right? The, the core lib, it, in principle, it could be it could be linked, but you know, and the, maybe I should explain a little bit how the core the CLR engine loads up yeah. uh, on an image. I was just gonna. You could probably simplify by saying that's all the stuff that is the virtual machine. That's right. Yeah, yeah it's. Those the stuff the virtual machine has to preload. Right. The base class libraries like the strings, the threading, yeah. and it has to be loaded from MS Colib. It's it's like the MS Colib. The file name has is hard coded inside yes. the CLR engine. Wow. Yeah. So that's why it's difficult, but it can be done if because you can do like a virtualized virtualization with. But we just haven't done that yet. I'm going to ask you to hold that thought while we just take a moment to remind the listeners that uh, .NET Rocks is supported by sponsors and advertisers. It's the only way that we can bring this show to you every week. And one of those advertisers is Data Dynamics. They make a product called ActiveReports.net and lots of other great products. Uh, Simple, effective, powerful reporting. Very easy. Drop the reports onto your forms and ship them with your product. And uh, they're online at www.datadynamics.com. So, so what you're saying is your native .NET compiler requires CoreLib, MS CoreLib. Yeah. So that's that CoreLib has to be. Uh, separate present 
you could compare that quality into native code as well. I see. But that file has to that file cannot be linked into your final exe. And it's really only because the name is hard coded in the calls to it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Because before loading your exe, that MS quality has to be loaded first. Okay. But as so long like, as it's already resident, then you're fine. Yes. Uh huh. Like uh, first uh, the. All the .NET images just look at very similar to the older format. It's all PE format, right? Mm. With a PE, with some headers in the executor file and with a few sections. One section is called text section, contains all the code. Yeah. And there's a debug section with some simple data sections. So when when, the, when your OS loader and .NET image, they go to a Qualib, go to a DLS. They actually go to another native one. MS Core EE, that's the native component of the Sonnet virtual machines. Yeah. And that MS Core EE is the native DLL, which right. means C++ then loads the MS Core Lib. And to set up all the conditions, that's to set up the virtual machine, then your EXE get executed. So what is it, what's the, let's go to back to the sample here. How big is the the non-native version, the .NET version, and then again, how big is the fully compiled standalone version? The original version is about uh, uh, 90 kilobytes. Okay. After linking, after linking for one for .NET framework, one dollar one is about two uh, It's about three Mac. Which is just about as much as it would take up in memory. I don't know if any if any of our listeners ever bothered to look and see how much memory even a simple Windows Forms application that comes up and says hello takes, yep. or even a even a console application is going to take a few megabytes, That's four right. or five. Yes, uh-huh. because of all of the stuff. Um, is there are there any more memory requirements once it's loaded in? I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, because even you don't link, right? You have to load all the different DLL references. Right. So the memory usage is supposed to be about the same. Yeah. Also, it's interesting to notice .NET Framework 1.1 is much smaller than .NET Framework. Is much what? The free, 1.1 Framework class library is much smaller than 2.0. Oh, smaller, yes. Right. But the link, the same sample linked under 2.0 is about 6 meg. Yeah. 6 megs. 1.1 is like a 3 meg. Right. And 2.0 is a 6 meg. So that brings us to .NET 3.0. Are you working on anything for this? <laughs> I just uh, started playing with a bit, uh, some of version, but hasn't hasn't put out two yet. Any... any uh... Any gotchas or surprises that you've seen so far? Uh, not, not really. In term, because the Cielo engine is, more, is becoming more and more stable. Yeah. Our tool does not. Our tool don't target the high level source code level. We just target the metadata. The virtual machine in itself doesn't really change too much. Yeah. Good. Which is a very good. It's a good thing. Yeah, wow. I think so. Well, they got it right. It's working. They don't want to tear it apart. Just keep <laughs> yeah. adding more stuff on top so that we get more features. Yeah, but from 1.1 to 2.0, there are actually many changes in the virtual machine. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I, I think a lot of that had to do with their experiences of taking the 
uh, CLR to SQL Server and just understanding what it was going to take to make that portable into a different environment. What are some of the changes that you that you're uh, thinking about here? You mean from one dot one framework, one dot one two two oh? Right. Like for the for the virtual machine, because in order to support generics, they have to extend extend the metadata, the IO spec. So they needed to extend, just extend some of the specification for the for the metadata. Right. So the underlying specification for metadata changes to support generics properly, and that has an impact all the way through the framework. And that didn't throw you for a loop, generics. Yeah. Did it? Was that hard to uh, to decompile? Uh, it's make a little bit harder, but still, if we because they're well documented and it has all the specs. Yeah. They have added a few instructions to support generics. Yeah. And it's it's still it's easy to decompile generics. All right. So it was a little I bit of work, but it didn't really wasn't a real challenge. That's right. <laughs> uh, just uh, like a. In, ter- in, in CLR terms, they're using all different table, tables to support the different elements of the CLR. Mm. So they introduce more tables, the metadata tables. Right. More metadata tables. Hui Hong, is there any uh, anything else about the native compiler that's interesting that we should that we yes, should know I about? I think I should. Uh, I would like to mention it's actually the native compiler actually implements uh, application virtualization technology. Really? So, like, in addition to linking and a native compile, we actually, you can, now you don't have to install your .NET program. You can put everything together into a CD and then run from a CD or from a directory. So it's a truly X copy. Oh, right. you literally could t- plug the CD in your machine and there is no install. You just run it and it runs. Right. That's right. Because uh, you, if you look at, if you do if you have ever done Sonnet installation, there are actually many, many registry interests has to be imported into a system. Right, right. So our virtual machine actually captures all those registry interests. That's fascinating. I mean, it's very cool because you don't need the to install the framework. But when we talk to people at Microsoft about this, and I remember Brent Rector, we asked him about this, people are like afraid of this. I mean, well, you know, they say there's a good reason why. We have the CLR and the virtual machine is to, you know, to uh, to to deal with things that you don't have to deal with in the in the uh, in the na- as a native application. So, uh, can you f- see any downside to to using this uh, native compiler? What are some of the downsides? Um, you, the downside is, I mean, the distribution package. If you if your customer already have done done that framework installed, right? Right. Maybe you, if you don't want to distribute a bigger package. Right. The other one is uh, the some of the memory used might get because the work set might, might be high because not RDL are not shareable. Right, right. Some of the CLR DLLs, like MS Qualib. Sure. I can also see that if there were bug fixes made to the framework, uh, in a regular app that's using the framework, normally they're just going to get those fixes naturally. Where your case, you have to do a recompile and redistribute. Yes, you have mm. to run through a link too. But I found we do have many customers because the, their customers have concerns of installed on that framework. Right. right. I mean, you're really addressing the core issue here, which is lots of people have a problem installing the .NET framework on their client stations. 
Is that so much of a problem anymore, though? I mean, it used to be an issue back in the day of 1.0 and 1.1, even maybe a little because of bandwidth. But I mean, I, I know a lot of speaking about home home installations anyway. You know, uh, cable modems and DSL are are the are, are the majority of people that are online at home are using this. And it, does it really is it really about speed and in installation and downloading, or is it about uh, security, you know, and, and other reasons why people aren't installing the .NET framework. Yeah, what are the reasons? The security, rather than just the bandwidth. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's more of a corporate environment issue. Until it's distributed on the OS, and it's still not distributed on the OS, we still are going to have this issue. That's so right. this is yeah. just amazing that you can use all the latest tools of the day. The you know Visual Studio .NET, C Sharp, Visual Basic .NET and all the third-party tools you want, and at the end of the day, come down with this big honking EXE, which you can just download and run on any machine, <laughs> .NET or no .NET. Uh-huh. That's really awesome, if you but think about even, it. Yeah, even if, that, if, even if every machine has a .NET installer, there's still a market for this kind of virtualization because the installation problem, right? right? Yeah, yeah the X-copy uh, installation. Yeah. Don't have to worry about having permission to write registry entries or any of those things. Or do you have the right versions of the libraries? None of that is important. Everything you need is in the executable. You just also, brought up an interesting point, Richard, that you don't need permission to access the registry. I mean, you basically are running a native application, so there is no security code access security, right? Exactly. So you don't have to be an admin in order to install .NET Framework. In order well, you don't to have to figure any of that stuff out. Well, that's one way to look. To execute. That's one way to look at it. But another way to look at it is, holy shit, we don't have any security. We circumvented the entire thing. Yeah, that's either good <laughs> or bad, depending on who you are, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We, you and know? you don't, you have. Well, I think this is one of the things you are walking towards there, Carl. Is when it's a CLR, you know what the CLR does, and you have security around the CLR and so forth. But when you're taking pieces of CLR and compiling it into your app, you lose all that control. Yeah. You don't really know what it does. It right. may say it's CLR code, but maybe it's not. And again, you, you know, the security rules are eliminated. So all the power that's in the framework now uh, is unprotected. We can do whatever we want with it. Yeah, it's so good. You, you got to trade that it's a incredible convenience of a straight executable, right? For hey, you understand we can do what we want with this code. Now the other question is speed. Um, do do we really gain any performance benefits by having yeah, a native? For the native after native compile, I think that's the best performance on the startup time you can ever get. Startup time is performance is best. Startup time and the performance it's like the maximum engine utility, right? If your engine all the fails. Yeah. The startup time is faster. So the startup time is faster. What about just general execution time? Not general that we. Execution yeah. It's about the same. Yeah. We sort of. The yeah. CLR in itself is using native code for execution. Yeah. And, and the reality is, I mean, machines today, we don't see. There isn't really any such thing as a really slow application because of the <laughs> machine, right. right? Yeah. You don't have to use a super fast algorithm to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason I want to mention the virtualization is not just the .NET program, but in general, I think in the future, people want to do application virtualization to get rid of uh, the installation headache and uh, the DL conflict. Yeah, you know, this is a uh, this is a whole topic unto itself, application virtualization. And, and uh, we, we have had requests 
from listeners to have guests on to talk about this very topic because there's a lot of discussion going on in the community about it. Like uh, internally, we actually made a Microsoft framework to run under Linux. Wait a minute. The same, the same framework, the batteries can run actually under Linux to have a Windows Forms and SD.net. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying you have .NET programs running on Linux, Windows Forms, without Mono or anything like that? That's right, exactly. Now you say internally. This isn't something you're sharing? Uh, it's just, uh, I just made a, we made a simple program to run using our virtualized environment. So we kept all the registry keys and all the system DRLs and then just move into Linux and it runs. So, wait a minute. So, Miguel de Acaza has got this project called Mono that's been going on for a while. You know about this, right? Yeah, I know that. Okay. That's a total re-implementation of the framework. So, one guy, you, Hui Hong, has, has basically gone up against what the, these guys, this whole team of people at Mono are doing. Because I use a different approach. I use a Microsoft library. I don't re-implement, right? If, sure. I, if I, I could. You don't having to write all of the, the classes and libraries and so forth at .NET. You just virtualize the entire thing so that it could run on the different platform. What I think yeah. is amazing yeah. about this, though, is just that, you know, one really smart guy who finds the right way to do something can come up with the same results as a team of people who are doing something uh, the reason, yeah, the way. reason I want to do this is because the model that do re-implementation, I think that we right. always play catch yeah. to Microsoft implementation. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got the distinct advantage of everything being ported across. The price, of course, is that you're paying for the cost of virtualization, that performance hit and the, the sort of scope hit of working in a virtual space. Yeah, the, the best we would have just using the exactly same binary and just re-implement the low-level virtualization it's just one Microsoft framework right Linux right wow so that's why I think uh, application virtualization is, is going to be a good trend does this mean we're going to see from remote soft tools to run uh, your .NET applications on Macs and Linux um, I may release like uh, we, I made uh, the script sample the native compile the link the script sample to run under Linux mm. wow very well. Also, I did some simple SP.NET. But still, there are lots of other issues because Windows native support, like if you do com interrupt, right? Sure. Those kind of stuff. But essentially, we could use this virtualization technology to run any .NET framework library. Well, and Mono has the same issues with you know enterprise services and yeah, all of those some things. Yeah, other issues. But for the yeah. little things like... It, it could adopt, at least has the same functionality as Mono. Mm. It, could, it should be better than Mono, I think, because right. using Microsoft framework. Very interesting. So that, I think the virtualization is the next interesting area I'm going to now. Yeah, I think it's a huge potential. I'm really excited what you might be able to do with it, you know, considering your background. Yeah. I'd, uh the, talking about multiple platforms, let's talk about multiple languages in the Octopus.net translator. That's exactly true. Yeah, I want to someday, like every day, just carry a 4 gig, maybe a USB drive has all the applications. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Plug into anywhere and run it. Right. Doesn't matter what the guy's running, it'll just run. Yeah, yeah. As, as long as the Windows. But, so anyway, yeah, that's the, that's the one thing I want to mention. It's virtualization application virtualization 
or link to actually implement part of that to capture files and register interest. Yeah. So you don't have to, so, so that the file, the application doesn't touch any of the system. Yeah. That's is, uh, so let's talk about the uh, octopus. Yeah, the octopus is actually, we have implemented a few code DOMs for C Sharp, for VP.NET, mm -hmm. for Java, the JDK 1.3, 1.4, and 1.5. Okay. So you, we actually we pass all the source code into a code DOM and then translate, regenerate source code. So it just goes into the DOM one way and comes out another way. That's but right. you're actually translating from JDK Java to C Sharp. Yeah, that project is one of the earliest projects we call Java.net, but we huh. have never really released. We actually compare all the JDK 1.3 1 into C -Sharp, into .NET format. Wow, wow. And we have, uh, I have implemented, I have, a, I did a, a compiler in this, yeah, in this area to compare Java source code direct into AL code. That's amazing. I mean, it's one thing to go from one IL language to another, but to go from a different IL mm -hmm. <laughs> to another. Yeah. So as you can see, I just, I, I really interested to play with the new things, new things. Sure. Yeah. And the Java Donut was, uh, it's actually, I studied that in from 2000. It's about the same time as I read, wrote the decompiler. Right. So on one hand, I, I want to do decompile, and the other hand, I want to compile. So it's like both decompile and compiler were developed at the same time. When I'm thinking, you know, you've just got a mindset for the concept of language and how of computer languages and how they're compiled, and so of course how they're decompiled. It's just a, it's a style of thinking that I think an awful lot of developers just don't think that way. Yeah, you know, it's exactly. a different problem how the lang how languages get turned into machine code is a is a very interesting problem, but it is in a specific area of, uh, of thinking. It's very much computer science as opposed to um, computer engineering. Yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, many people are more, whether they're more targeting on the application end, right? Yeah, right. They're, they're definitely, they're in the domain space of building applications. And uh, you're very much in the tool space of the things we need to be successful at building applications. Because that makes more money. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is a good question. I mean, you're obviously doing well for yourself. You've been in business for years, for a few years here. And um, do you ever think about, has Microsoft ever called you to try to hire you? Or Actually, yeah, they, they, they called me a few times. Yeah. Obviously, but, but we know I, how that I, went. <laughs> with my own, with this new things I want to play. Yeah. Well, we we obviously know how that phone call went. You said no. <laughs> no plans to um, move to Redmond, huh? After I graduated in '98, actually, I got an offer from Microsoft to work as a new graduate. But at that time, I just didn't want to live in the Bay Area. To work where? Work with Microsoft in Seattle. Oh, in, in Seattle. Seattle. Okay. Yeah, but you didn't want to leave San Francisco or the Bay Area, so. And he turned them down. All right. Um, so, Octopus, is there is there anything uh, special about this that you want to brag about? Um, or is it pretty straight ahead? It, yeah, I think it's a straightforward. But I think that I want to mention that 
the work, the time I have spent is actually enormous because different languages, the different passing. Yeah. Very lots of gory details. Right. And this is still a, a beta product. You, you're really not selling this per se? Yeah, we just offer some consulting and the people upload stuff because we use all the technology into not the source code search, the code is. Yeah. We haven't really. I have, I have to, yeah, to, to make a part, I need it to be much more, do some more work to make the GUI, to do testing. Yeah. So let's talk about Codace. So now, basically, yeah, the yeah. code is just make one more step further using the Octopus technology, right? So this on the on the on the surface, it seems okay. You have a search engine for code now, but what's interesting about this is that you can constrain this by syntax, right? Yes. So you could uh, like tell like uh, give me code uh, invoke these two methods. And yeah. give me some sample code with using this class, so you can do this kind of a search. Now, what is it searching? I mean, where is the source material coming from? Oh, uh, the source material we have a index just uh, from open source code. Okay. So, so far, you... we have an index two fifty million lines for code. Now, is this stuff that people can contribute source code to, like the Planet Source Code idea? Uh, not yet. Right now, we just people can submit a project and we index it. Wow! So we just download the project mainly from SourceForge. Right. So I mean, just indexing SourceForge properly—that's a lot of code. Yeah, it's a lot of code actually. Even the Java code we just download from SourceForge is like eleven hundred ten million lines of code. So this is obviously not just .NET code. This is Java code and native code and code actually we do Java code DOM is the best. Right. So we did a Java and a C plus for now. So I mean, it's one thing. What's somebody searching for here? They're looking for a chunk of code that does a particular thing. Uh, and how would they they go about just expressing that search? They would write a phrase. I want something that does this. Yeah, we actually have a query back. So suppose you want to some code using like invoke f open f read and f write. Right. So you just do it like within semicolon. Put those words together with semicolon. Right. It's, it's like a code snip snippet. Right. And you have some, some smart queries, some samples there that you just yeah, can just click on. Yeah, we have a few samples. Like you could expect, you could expect which method to to call and what kind of uh, arguments. Hmm. I'm just thinking I have another angle on this. What if I took a chunk of code and pasted it into here? Would uh, it tell me where it came from? That's exactly what we are thinking. You are in the <laughs> right direction. And what I'm thinking about is, uh, you know, I'm trying to evaluate the liability this application I've got has what other libraries are incorporated into it. And people may tell me what they've used, but there's no substitute for actually firing the code into this and knowing for sure, hey, that code shows up in this library and that code shows up in this other library so that you've got a, a very clear proof of where stuff came from. Yeah, that's exactly like if we, within Visual Studio, right, if you program, sometimes you want to find just the similar code. Some, right. Yeah, we could do that just... Essentially, we just need to extract some of the important stuff and then pass that into our search engine. Mm -hmm. Like following your code, we could pass 
just do a little passing and to figure out what are the methods, what are the classes. Wow. And then pass those information to our search engine and retain the code, which is similar to your own code. So is your intention to be sort of the Google of source code here? <laughs> uh, right now, we are more focusing on the technology. Rather, just we really want to do something unique. Yeah. Because there are some search engine available today, just uh, text-based search. Yeah. Since we have the code dom technology, we want to do some something better than just text-based search. So, since this is all code dom based, you could search with one language and return code in another language. Is that right? Yeah, that's, uh, the direction we went to, yeah, if you, you are exactly right. If we could offer our translator, so people can click. Built into the search, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, to be able to find a chunk of code written in Java and just say, would you like to see this as C-sharp? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, you've used Lutz Rotor's reflector, right? Yes. Now, we've asked Lutz to come on the show before, and a I, classic response I got from him is, nobody wants to hear me. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? Come on. What do you uh, What do you think about Reflector, and how is your decompiler different from the output f- of Reflector? Uh, Reflector, I know. Yeah, I know. Lutz. Uh, yeah, we talked. Uh, we have a community with the email a few times. Yeah. Then Reflector is a very, it's a very, very good tool. Yeah, it's but great. myself, I don't, I haven't, I didn't really use it a lot. So I. I I tried a few times. It's it's a, the output is good. What's great about it is just trying to figure out how something was done. You don't necessarily want to run the source code, but you want to. You have a, a an assembly, and you want to figure out how they're doing something. You know, are they using this call or that call? Very easy to just go in in any language, and and hyper the hyperlinks are are great in Reflector. Exactly. I mean, nowadays people use the decompilers mainly to learning how right. work. Exactly. That's necessarily mean people want to steal your source code. Sure. Like yeah, I'm just trying to understand what's going on. And actually, Code strikes me as the same sort of tool of show me some good samples using these methods. Yeah. Yes, that's that's right. I just want to provide it. All all these tools just trying to improve your productivity gains, right? Right. So people don't want to spend too much time thinking of a problem. They yeah. want to find the answers immediately. And even if only offer some clues, it's still helpful. Right. So uh, Reflect is a, is a good one. The only difference is because Reflect limits um, general source code for each method rather than for the whole file, right. the whole class. Right, which you'd but have this, to do by hand. This is like a, it's, not imp- it's like a more, they just put a constraint. It's not like an implementation flow or something like that. So what are, what do your tools cost? Uh, and I know that there are some free samples that you can just interact with on your website. But what what if you want to buy this stuff? What how much uh, is for it? For the for the decompiler, we our pricing is ten ninety nine for a single license. You said ten two ninety nine. Ten ten ninety nine. Ten ninety nine. Our basket is a seven ninety nine. Okay. Uh, that's for five developers for the. Attack is eighteen ninety nine for five developers. The link and the native compiler is twelve forty nine for five developers. Now we're talking about twelve hundred forty nine, right? Um, for the link to yeah twelve forty nine. Yeah, twelve hundred forty nine. Okay. 
but this is all like a, this all tools is like a, if you look at the price myself a little bit high because it's like a build build tools right? right don't use it a lot well i was i would i was going to say you know anybody who who needs these tools the you know the price is right i mean how how many hours of recreating software is it going to take yeah you only need to recover one application because you've lost the project and only have the compiled code and it's still you do that it. once you've paid for anything this might cost yeah that's right also because we offer five developer license so now for small companies just one license is enough right and you know if you look at the other other baskets it's about pressing the same range because yeah. this is not like uh, you don't use it every day. It's like uh, only when your product product is ready, you yeah. run it. Yeah. It's All like, right. Um, like installation tools. Yeah. Okay, Hui Hong, uh, we're coming to the end of the show. You know, I usually ask my guests if there's anything cool they've seen online lately, or any tools they've downloaded or bought, or uh, thing uh, toys that they've picked up. Is there anything uh, that you're spending an inordinate amount of time with lately? Uh, you mean any cool tools? Anything. Anything. I think uh, that the Chinese search engine I find is interesting. Really? Wow. And it's what? actually not rather than search the static stuff, the search the the real time, like a, a train ticket. You know, in China, the train ticket is very hot. Right. Train People tickets, take train ticket, movie tickets, a lot. Yeah. So they actually offer a search engine for those kind of a dynamic information, house rental, tickets. Yeah. And all those uh, like uh, all those kind of information. more, I think the next the next generation search engine has to be addressed. Those so stuff. very, it's able to deal with the time sensitivity issue that this data is only relevant for a short amount of time and it changes over time. So and you know how do you index that in a way that's still going to be useful when somebody does the search. Hmm. That's right. Like they could have uh, up to 50 minutes just before. Like, uh, Richard, if you're looking at a house, right, you want to search, go to some search engine, just up to 30 days will have to last a few hours. What kind right. of is available? Wow. So those kind of a search engine. It's, uh, or getting the train schedule for the next week or six months from now. Exactly. You know, that's a very interesting search challenge. Well, Hui Hong, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, uh, I can't tell you how excited I am to have finally talked to you and, and uh, gotten some of the inside scoop on your tools. Great stuff. It's my pleasure. I hope yeah, people can find this uh, topic useful. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl Never Sleeps. 
Net Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Time for life is hard.